good morning, Christ Community Church. If I haven't had a chance to say, it's good to see you. It's good to see you. Thank you, Pat Martin. Uh, I am senior pastor here, if you're a visitor, and been away for uh, a week or two, and uh, or eight, and I really am glad to be back. I'm glad to be back. We're going to be looking at Psalm 19 this week and next week, and, and possibly... Uh, the week after that. So I want you to turn to Psalm 19. This was the psalm that was sort of my text for my sabbatical. If you don't have a Bible, there's a blue Bible in front of you, page 456. And then we're going to also turn to Romans chapter 1, Romans 1. So Psalm 19, Romans 1. And I think, I think you'll hear some echoes of Psalm 19 in Romans 1. So as you find your way there, I want to ask you this question. What is your most important pursuit in life? I mean, you have more than one, which is fine. But if you just have to say, what's, what's humanity's most important pursuit and I would suggest the Bible answers that question by saying to know God, to know God. Jesus says this directly in John 17, and this is eternal life. This is abundant life that you know God. It's not just eternal life like something in the future, but it's abundant life right now. Knowing God gives you real life. Uh, Jesus echoing Jeremiah 9, the Lord says, let, let, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his strength. Not, let not the rich man boast in his wealth. But let him, let him who boasts boast in this. What is that? That he understands and knows me. I mean, it's fine to be wise and it's fine to be wealthy. It's fine to be these other things, but there's really only one thing worth boasting about. And that is that you understand God, you actually know God. The Apostle Paul, again, says the same thing in Philippians 3. I count everything a loss. Everything is on one side, and I consider it a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. So knowing God surpasses all other pursuits, and if knowing God surpasses all other pursuits, then how do we go about knowing God. And this is where Psalm 19 helps us. David, the psalmist, provides for us primary source material on how to know God. Now, most of us know something about David. He was a very wise man. He wrote basically half the Psalms. He was a very wealthy man. He was a king. He was a man of great power. He was a general in an army. He's the one who killed Goliath. So he has, he has a lot of things that would capture his attention. Wisdom, wealth, power, but something, something wooed David's heart. Something captured David's attention that was above these things, and that was his knowledge of God. And David comes to know God, and we'll see this in Psalm 19 here in a minute, through the world and through the word. Those are the two primary source materials David gives us to say. You can know something about God from just the creation, just looking at the world. And then you can know more specifically about God by looking at his word. And when you look at the world and you look at his word and you put those things together, then it shapes the way, or maybe I should say reshapes the way that you live. 
So that's why I've titled the sermon, The World, The Word, and The Way. The world, you can know something about God from his creation. The word, you can know some more specific things about God from his word. And then once you see those things, then it's supposed to translate into the way in which you life, way the way in which you live your life. So this morning, Psalm 19, Romans 1, and we'll begin in verse 18. Let's stand together as we read God's word, and we'll begin with Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaim his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, there are no words whose voice is not heard. Their measuring line goes throughout all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of the heavens, its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether, more to be desired than they are gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Romans chapter 1 verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor God as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. They claimed to be wise, yet they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, resembling mortal man, birds, animals, reptiles. Therefore God gave them up in their lust of their hearts and the impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is forever blessed. You may be seated, and let's take a moment to reflect on God's word. So one of my, pri- my primary goal, not just one of them, but my primary goal for my sabbatical was just to go away and come back knowing God better. I mean, if I wanted other things to happen. I hope they would happen, but that was really the main thing is to say, I feel like I know God better. And so I just kind of followed this psalm along. One, I wanted to know him better from his world, his creation, and from his word. 
and that then allow those things to reshape my way, the way in which I live. And sticking with the order of the psalm here in the sermon series, I want to first just talk about experiencing God from his from the world. And the way I wrote this is I wanted to experience the overflowing, joyful glory of God through his world. The overflowing, joyful glory of God. Now, why, why do I say it that way? Well, first of all, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. Glory is best described as when you try to describe God as holy, what you're trying to say when you use that word is he's different. He's separate than me. I'm, I'm not like God in some ways. He's, he's holy. He's altogether separate. But when he shows up and he appears, his holiness becomes manifest or appears, and it's called glory. So Moses says, show me your glory, O Lord. So I, can you take your holiness and somehow pack it down in some way that I can experience it? I have no doubt many of us have experienced the glory of God through creation. You can probably think of a moment where you're just standing in creation in some way, just marveling. Might do that at the birth of a newborn. People save all year who live in the middle of the country to get one week to get a beach house. And just so they can just stand in the Atlantic Ocean, the thing that we can do every day. And just, you know how it is. I mean, you may, maybe it's too, you, you've done it too much, but you just stand there. And, and what you want to do is you just want to stand in the surf and just be completely overwhelmed with creation. Just like, I just can't imagine how big this is and how powerful it is. And we've all had those experiences where th this shows me something about God. It reveals something that my soul rejoices in. The heavens declare, the skies proclaim, day after day they pour forth speech. So we're talking about creation and its magnificent magnificence and when we see it it's supposed to turn your attention to the lord it's not the end it's the sign of the end the creator then notice the creation overflows with communication it pours out speech the the picture here is like a mountain spring that's constantly bubbling up or you might think of like a boiling pot that's overflowing it just never ceases creation never you never get tired of it I mean, I, lived, I have lived here for 30 years. I have a boat, and I go out and watch the sunset plenty of times or the sunrise. And if I'm by myself or, or even with a group, when the sun is setting, what, what just naturally happens in a group? We just stop talking for a moment. Just watch it set. Or you're out there, and you just, you don't, you don't want a lot of chatter about I sure want a bit breakfast biscuit when the sun's coming up. No, you want to, you just want to stop and just watch it come up. I mean, it only takes a minute or two, but you just, you don't want anything to distract from that moment because there's something, there's something glorious in that moment. It's designed that way. It pours out, it bubbles up. Creation is like a megaphone for God. And one thing creation is intended to communicate about the glory of God is that his glory is full of joy. I want to make sure you walk away with that today. 
when you see creation and you think about the glory of God, one of the things that you're supposed to take away is that it's full of joy. And you know that from the two illustrations David chooses here in verse 5. He describes the glory of God bursting with joy like the joy of a bridegroom and the joy of a runner, the joy of a bridegroom. He's, he's coming out of his chamber. You see that in verse 5? He comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. He's not just sort of wandering out on his wedding day. He's bursting out. He cannot wait to go get his bride. He, he wants that closeness. He wants that intimacy. This is the day he's been waiting for. It's the glory of God is bursting forward like the sun breaking the horizon. It's, it's trying every day to bring warmth and life-giving power. And so when you see creation, when you see a, a sunrise or a sunset or any other part of creation, then you just see it bursting forth like a newborn. You're supposed to think, that's God jo- God's joy. It longs to just burst forth and overflow on you. That's why it says in um, the Old Testament, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new. What does it say? Every morning. He never gets tired of bursting forth joy. He's always ready like the sun coming over the horizon to just pour out his joy in your life. Now, the second illustration is a little harder for me to appreciate. Bursting forth like a a joyful runner. Now, joyful runner is an oxymoron to me. I mean, when I think about running, joy is nowhere in my vocabulary. Stopping running is joyful. But, But I think David, he understands athletics. And in, in, in uh, next summer, 2024, where many of us are going to tune into the Olympics in Paris, and, and you're going to watch some kind of relay, or you're going to watch some kind of hurdle, or you're going to watch some sort of 100-meter dash, and you know the picture. I physically can't do it right here. But they, they put their hands down on the starting blocks, you know? And, and just for that second, you just see all their muscles, like, rippling through their arms and their body like a like uh, just being ready to be shot out so they can get the prize. That's the picture David wants you to have. God gets up every morning and he's aiming for you like a runner. And he wants to chase you down. But not to beat you up. That's what some of us think. Oh my gosh, I hope he doesn't find me today. No, he, he wants to bubble forth joy. He wants you to feel his magnificent, magnificence in his creation so he, you know he has that same magnificence for you. He's, he's coming for you. Theologian Stephen Charnock says this. He wrote in a big book called The Attributes of God. In every creature we find a footprint of divine wisdom. Like a footprint in the sand that Riceville Beach. It's leading somewhere. Someone's been here. So when I see you, when I see a sunset, when I watch a bird fly through the sky, it's just a little footprint saying, hey, God's real. I I picked out three pictures that were 
I've, I've thought about recently, and I wanted to share them with you, just to give you a, a picture of beauty. This is the first one. It's called the Bar-Tailed Godwit. Never heard of it. I was listening to a, a, an NPR show with this guy who studied birds. This bird has the longest nonstop migration because it can't physically rest on the water. And it flies over the widest part of the Pacific Ocean, and it, and it flies for 11 days straight without stopping, and it flies around 7,000 miles. Can you imagine that? And there are a lot of challenges, as you might imagine, 11 days straight, 7,000 miles. But one of them is sleep, because it needs some measure of sleep during this time, and it's been, been made in such a way that ha he can put, he or she, can put half of its brain to sleep at a time. And it, it goes back and forth. So half of my brain is asleep and I'm flying, and then the other half of my brain is asleep, and it doesn't enough to get a whole day's sleep or night's sleep, whatever a bird needs. I see some of you doing this during the sermons. <laughs> If I can just put half of my brain to sleep, it just works for migratory birds, I'm sad to say. Do not try to practice this today. But isn't that incredible? Isn't that amazing? When you see that and you see what it can do, you're just amazed by it. But that amazement is supposed to draw your attention to something else. It's not the end. It's not like Romans 1 saying... Well, let's worship this bird. It's a sign of somebody or something else, the creator. These redwood trees, I talked about them last week because I went to the redwood forest in California two weeks ago. On a Sunday, I'm standing in the redwood forest. I'm traveling down a, a pretty famous highway called the Avenue of the Giants. And if you ever get a chance to take this road, it's really cool. But these redwood trees... They're 300 to 400 feet high. They're just so massive, you can't imagine. Their diameter, the biggest ones, are as wide as this stage, one tree. Can you imagine that? 20, 25 feet wide. Some of them are 2,000 years old. And when you stand that next to them, you feel small in every way. And you just think, this is powerful, this is majestic, and it's designed for that way. They're designed to grow together so their root systems can lock together and they can grow high and grow strong and stay up for a long period of time. And all of that knowledge that's revealed to you in study of these trees is supposed to lead you to a creator. So we don't become tree worshipers. The trees help us move in a direction Finally, this galaxy cluster. You see this? Some of you know this uh, telescope that's been put up in space, the James Webb Telescope. If you don't know it, just Google it and just be amazed at some of the pictures it's brought back. This particular cluster is called Cluster SMACS 0723. I mean, they got to be better than that, I think. But there's so many of them, I guess they're left with numbers and letters. But I, I've named this one the Galaxy Parking Lot. Because in this frame, there are 5,500 galaxies. 
So the Milky Way is a galaxy. There's 5,500 of those in this frame. There's, they, they've identified 50,000 points of light. And here's the amazing thing. It's 4 billion light years away. So you could never see it by just standing on Earth. It can only be seen by this telescope. But to try to give you an idea of how much space this picture takes up in our night sky, take a grain of sand, hold it in your fingers, hold it up to the sky, and that's how big this space is. Isn't that amazing? There's 5,500 galaxies in this amount of space that I can identify. Imagine the whole system. So when David says, night after night, they reveal knowledge, of course, knowledge that we don't have yet. It's incredible. And so when you look at these pictures and you have your own picture in your mind, when you look at creation, it's supposed to stir something up. But it's not supposed to end there. It's supposed to bring you to, somebody must have created this. They have no speech. They use no words. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. The sky is God's handiwork. In other words, when you see it, it's like a work of art. And if I see Kathy Poulos' work of art, whether it's online or in our hallway out here, when I look at it, I don't think, well, how did that happen? No, I think, somebody must have painted this. this it didn't just happen. There, there's got to be an artist behind it. So when you see the artwork of creation, you're supposed to say, there's got to be something behind it, even if you don't know who that something is. There's an artist. Psalm 14 says, it is the foolish man who says, there is no God. He has not left himself without a witness. Every day, every night, it pour force, pours forth speech. Now, I, I can't be sure, but I don't think it's a stretch to imagine the Apostle Paul, a Jewish man, steeped in the Old Testament. He knows Psalm 19. He's sung Psalm 19 many times. And again, I can't be sure, but I'm guessing this little tune of Psalm 19 He's humming as he writes Romans 1. He's trying to make a case for God. And I think he has Psalm 19 in his mind. And you can sort of hear it as we sort of look at it again. Psalm, I mean, Romans 1, 18. The wrath of God is revealed. It's coming against those who suppress the truth. The people who have suppressed the truth about God, they should know something by looking at creation. God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have clearly been shown since the creation of the world. So men are without excuse. Paul understands we can't know everything about God from creation. But you should be able to say, this is a work of art. There's got to be an artist. That's the minimum you should be able to say. Every man, every woman, no matter where you are on the earth, you should be able to say that. But when a culture suppresses the truth, when society suppresses the truth that God, there is no God behind creation, there is no creator, 
in which creation is accountable. There's no reason to believe that men and women are created with a particular identity. There's no reason to believe that men and women are created with a particular purpose. If there's no creator behind it, there's no reason to think that we were part of the creation. And so there is no identity that I I have. There is no purpose that I have. And so when a culture lets go of the creator, the culture is free to choose their own identity and purpose. And no God and no person can tell me what my identity is or my purpose. I self-identify. Can you imagine living in a culture like that? Yeah. Yeah. And I want you to know, and many of you know this, to try to create your self, your own identification, is a terrible pressure. It's a terrible pressure. It creates terrible pressure to create and maintain your own identity. In Christ, we receive an identity. I'm a son of God. I've received that. But if you don't have that, then you've got to create your own identity. And, of course, there's a lot of pressure on that. And then you've got to maintain that identity. And there's a lot of pressure on that. And you see how so much is riding on it by just going online. You have to support somebody's identity. And if you don't, you get yelled at. You get labeled. You get fired. That's what happens when a culture suppresses the truth and says, you know what, there is no creator, therefore I get to identify myself. And Romans 1 clearly states, when you look at creation and conclude there is no creator, then you are a fool. And you live in darkness. All of us have lived this life at some point. All of us are, even now as Christians, tempted towards that. To create an identity for ourselves, to post it so everyone can see exactly how wonderful our life is. That's a big temptation for everybody here. That day after day, night after night, like a lover who can't go, let go of its beloved, every morning, every evening, God puts on a show in creation, just trying to gain your attention back. He doesn't give up. No matter how far away you go in this world, you can't get away from creation. And every morning you wake up, he says, hey, I'm here. I'm chasing after you. I'm like a runner. I'm going to chase you down. No, no matter how much credit you give to the creation, I, I just, I'm going to keep pour, pouring forth glory and glory every morning until you recognize who I am. Listen to this quote from John Piper. We'll get to the end. The healing of the soul begins by restoring the glory of God to its flaming, all-attractive place at the center. We're all starved for the knowledge and glory of God, not ourselves. No one's starved for knowledge of themselves. No one goes to the Grand Canyon to increase your self-esteem. Why do we go? Why do we go to the Grand Canyon? Why do we go to the Atlantic Ocean? Why do we go to the Redwood Forest? Because there is a greater healing for the soul in beholding the splendor rather than beholding yourself. There is greater healing for your soul by beholding the splendor than beholding yourself. That's what happened two weeks ago. I stood at the base of this thousand plus year old redwood 
it didn't increase my self-esteem. It made me feel small, but in the best way, to know that there's a creator. So my hope, my prayer is that you'll make it your primary pursuit to know God. And we'll talk more ways of how to do it, but we'll bring this to a close here. That you would do it by just studying, staring at, marveling at his creation. Don't, don't wake up and just get in your car and turn your radio on or your playlist and just move through the day without just noticing something. It doesn't have to be big. You can just go outside of your house and just notice. I had a guy that was trying to get into a different rhythm in his life, and he said, Paul, the thing that helped me most was every morning I would wake up and make coffee. I couldn't get going without coffee. Anybody here like that? And the first five minutes of his coffee, he would just stand outside and just notice creation just in his backyard. And that helped begin to reorient him. Small, little practice began that reorientation process. Now, let me close here with one sort of preliminary point for next week. So this is like bonus information, all right? So if you want to try sleeping with one eye closed, now you can, because I'll say this again next week. But I want, I want you to see in the text this transition that we're going to make next week. He talks about creation. The sun rises to the ends of the heavens in verse 6, and then he makes this hard turn. The law of the Lord is perfect. He's moving from the world to the word, which we'll talk about next week. And he uses the beauty and awe of creation to stir up our emotions, which then begins our God-given desire to have an attachment. When your emotions get stirred up, then you start thinking, should I attach to this thing or attach to this person? The reason I wanted to say that is because this week I was reading about some neuroscience. There's been a lot of study in the last few years about how the brain works. And this neuroscientist was talking about right brain, left brain. Most of you know this, right? The right brain is the emotion and imagination, and the left brain is logic, language. And you say, oh, he's left brain. He's a total left brain. I mean, he's just so logical. And I'm a right brain. I'm just so emotional. So when Nancy comes to Paul and says, hey, what was their house like? What does she want to know? What did it feel like? And what does Paul say? You walk in, and to the right is a dining room, and to the left, I mean, I'm just totally logical. Just, and she's like, I don't care anything about that. Did it smell good? Did it have a good feeling? What was the vibe of it? I was like, I wasn't feeling the vibe. I mean, so, so you're right or breath, left brain, everybody has sort of a dominance. And what the neuroscientists are discovering is that when you encounter things or people, your right brain, emotions and imagination, always engages first. And it also works faster than your left brain, language and logic. The right side engages and regulates your relationship to things because we're cre creatures looking for attachment. And then the left side kicks in to think logically, should I attach to this? Does that make sense? I'm a teenage boy. I see a beautiful girl in high school. I have an emotional reaction. That's the first thing that happens. 
but you hope for this teenage boy or this teenage girl. Let's, use, let's let logic follow in here, Paul. He or she might not be a good connection, even though you have a right brain experience. It's why you say, can you give me your gut reaction? You ever said that? In other words, before your left brain kicks in with logic, just tell me how you feel. You met the person, did you have a good feeling? That's why we talk that way. And what I found interesting here is the way the brain works is the way David set up Psalm 19. I want you to have an emotional reaction first. I want you to look outside and go, wow. Look at this creation. Before any, there's any logic, let there just be some kind of love. It's incredible. Then your left brain says, there's got to be an artist behind this. There's got to be more information. And then David comes in in verse 7 and says, let me tell you more information by looking at God's Word. Does that make sense? Well, that's where we'll be next week. God's Word. This week, God's world. Next week, God's Word. And probably the third week, God's way. Let's pray. Lord, I'm, I'm grateful that we have windows here. That, that every Sunday when we gather here, glory pours forth. Even if we sing no song and have no words, you have words, silent words, a silent witness. And you have given um, all of us here a pleasant place to live, or at least to visit. To be able to stand by a river and watch it rush by, to stand at the ocean and just be overwhelmed at the size and power. And as we do, I pray this week, Lord, that you would turn these moments of beauty into beholding your glory and being shaped by it. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.